Hello everyone, Sława. Uh, welcome to yet another episode of Searching for the Slavic Soul, a podcast by Vitya. Uh, recently it's been more difficult than usual for me to find a quiet place and time to record. And because of the COVID situation is not going to get better any soon. So please forgive any weird background noises. Obviously, I will do my best to edit them out, but I might not be able to. So yeah, don't judge me. I'm doing my best. As to today's podcast, today we are going to be talking about Kupawa, which is a Slavic celebration of summer solstice. Uh, is the celebration of fertility and love and one of the most important holiday in the Slavic calendar. However, we are not going to be talking about the traditions of Kupawa because, well, because everyone talks about it nowadays anyway, which, you know, is a good thing because it means that Slavic culture is becoming more and more popular. And this is one of the two goals of the Vitias project. The other one, the other goal, or actually the main goal, is stripping the truly pagan, the truly Slavic out of the layers of foreign, mostly Judeo-Christian influences or misunderstandings. As to Kupawa, it is great that it's becoming more and more popular topic. It means that I don't have to explain too much about the actual traditions or rituals, And instead, I can just take those rituals and extract what we are always trying to find in this series of podcasts, the, the Slavic soul. So, I want to talk about Kupawa in the context of woman's position in the pre-Christian Slavic society. The context, the topic of women, women's rights, social status, and how respected they were by our ancestors, it came along after I read one time too much about how apparently women did not have any important position or were not considered important within the communities of our ancestors because, for example, women and precisely daughters could not inherit their father's wealth. Only sons could be the father's heirs. Being a woman myself, I thought that it can be right or rather, you know, it might not be right Because, you know, when exploring and searching for the Slavic soul here in Vitya's project, we do try our best to stay open-minded and we do our best to approach any topic without biases or preconceptions. Because biases and preconceptions of researchers and scholars and historians and chronicles, it's what got us to where we are now, with a culture of our ancestors being heavily contaminated with foreign mostly Judeo-Christian ideas. So I thought to myself, is it true? Was female half of the pre-Christian Slavic society really so marginalized? Was it true that my female ancestors did not have a voice? I started looking into it and quite quickly I hit a bit of a wall because there isn't that much written about women in historical sources about pre-Christian Slavs. Because, as with large part of the history of humankind, those sources, those chronicles and reports were written by men and about men affairs like war, politics, territorial conquest or, you know, religious stuff. And also, or rather, most importantly, the chronicles of pre-Christian Slavs came from societies, from cultures influenced by, let's call it, woman-unfriendly or women-objectifying ideas. Like, 
Judeo-Christian culture, which puts women under the rule of men and sees women as silly, not reliable, or not really that important in decision-making process, even when those decisions are to be made about things that influence the woman directly. But I thought to myself, were pre-Christian Slavs like that? Were my female ancestors important enough within the society to be allowed to decide about themselves? To answer those questions, I looked into the tradition of Kupawa, and this is why today, instead of analyzing historical sources, we will be looking into folklore, because it's the folklore, the rituals preserved by the ruler folk, the regular uneducated people who were not exposed to intellectual or philosophical or religious trends of the cities. It's them, those villagers that actually carried the pagan elements of the Slavic culture from early medieval ages to today, to the 21st century. So, Kupawa people, let's do it. Oh, and of course, I forgot the compulsory disclaimer. As always in this podcast, when I talk about ancestors, I'm talking about the pre-Christian Slavs. And my name is Magda Lewandowska. I'm your Polish presenter, as always. (laughs) And, you know, I'm not losing the plot. It only sounds like it. Kupawa. Kupawa. Kupawa is a really, really old tradition of celebrating the summer solstice. During Kupawa, our ancestors got together to dance, to be joyful, to have a good time and to celebrate the longest day of the year. One of the most important and most recognized elements of Kupawa ritual is throwing wreaths on the river. The Kupawa wreaths were made and thrown in the river by girls or young women. This is the tradition that made all the social media Slavic influencers post pictures of themselves wearing flowery, insanely colorful wreaths, more often than not with, you know, exposed chest and these duck-like lips that, you know, are so trendy nowadays. But what's really funny is that those Kupawa wreaths are actually thought to symbolize virginity. That is a very popular, very widely accepted symbolism of a wreath made from flowers. And I guess this is what the influencers are playing on when they publish their pictures. However, if you look at the way our ancestors lived, both the virgin symbolism and the insanely colorful wreaths don't really make much sense. Let's start with the virgins. If we look about the data of age distribution in human population in modern times, the average life expectancy of a human is around 72 years. In the whole human population, teenagers, so young people between the ages of 12 and 19 years, make up 13% of the society and females, regardless of the age, 29.6%. By the way, all the data are taken from the UN website. I have not, let me repeat, I have not made that up. I don't make stuff up. I try to logically derive it if I cannot get the actual data. If we look at our ancestors, it is estimated that their life expectancy was 30 to 32 for females and 33 to 35 for males. So roughly, we can say that our ancestors lived half as long as we do nowadays. 
Also, most of them lived in small communities of around 30 to 40 people. Again, I did not make those numbers up. Those, actually, those data I found in um, information gathered by the Museum of Polish Statehood in Gniezno. So with regards to those definitely not made up numbers, in the average Slavic village lived around 15 to 20 females of all ages. If in a society as old as our, 13% of people are teenagers, then we can assume that in a society half as young, there is half as much teenagers. So we come up with 26% teenagers in a typical pre-Christian Slavic community, which tell us that in an average early medieval Slavic village among 15 to 20 females, there was four or five teenage girls. Four or five girls between 12 and 19 years of age. And how many of those girls were virgins, do you think? One, maybe? On a good year, two? But apparently, there were hordes of virgins throwing flowers in the river during celebration of Kupawa. So where did those virgins come from? Aside of the unknown source of the virgins, it is important to figure out where did those mysterious virgins take the flowers for the reeds. Our ancestors lived on a land covered in 80% by forest and swamps. Meadows, a common feature of the 21st century landscape, they were much more rare in medieval ages. They were found only in places where forest couldn't grow, so on riverbanks or in the mountains. Pre-Christian Slavs did not exploit the land as intensely as is done nowadays, so they didn't have or didn't know vast regularly cut pastures or artificial meadows or parks or flower gardens. The main reason for that was that in the medieval ages, it wasn't easy to exploit the land. To, to use the land for human purposes, for example, to build a settlement or to grow crops, our ancestors had to first get rid of the forest. They didn't have power tools or trucks. They, they had to use their own hands and axes or sometimes fire to get rid of the forest, one tree at a time. So usable, deforested land was not easy to get in those times and our ancestors had to use it carefully. And this is why I'm pretty sure that, contrary to opinions of some of our commentators, pre-Christian Slavs did not have backyards filled with flower gardens. They most likely had plots of land adjacent to their houses, but they grew food there, not flowers. Sure, some food plants like beans or peas have pretty flowers, but guess what? Those flowers are necessary for the seeds to develop. If you pick up the flower from a pea plant, you won't have any peas to eat. So, with no meadows, because most of the land was a forest or a swamp, and no gardens full of flowers, in order to weave a wreath, pre-Christian Slavic girls had to look for flowers in the wild. And in June, in the temperate climate of Middle and Eastern Europe, multicolored flowers are not easy to find, because flowers like that need sun, and in June, in temperate climate, in a land that's 80% forest, there isn't a lot of sun getting to the ground, because the canopies of the trees, which in June are full of leaves, they catch the sunlight, so there isn't that much of it hitting the bottom of the forest. 
This is why in June, most flowers are small and lightly colored. They mostly white and yellow. Those flowers are easy to see in the shade under the trees, so they can still be found by the pollinating insects, but they don't require as much sunlight as big opulent flowers in red, blue or orange or whatever else color. Of course, in June, you can find multicolored flowers like red poppies or blue cornflowers, but those flowers grow mostly in the fields, which, let's not forget, were cultivated by our ancestors to grow life-sustaining crops. It's hard to imagine that any farmer would let hordes of virgins into his field so the virgins can pluck some flowers. I mean, come on. Kupawa is important, but not as important as the crops, which are essential food, they are absolutely necessary to survive. So our pre-Christian Slavic non-virgins didn't have a nearby meadow and I'm sorry, I, I really feel like I have to stress it once more, they did not have flower gardens. They couldn't pick up flowers from the fields, so they had to go to the forest or by the river or both. Facing the scarcity of the flowery raw material, I bet they did not make the reeds from flowers only. I bet the original Kupawa reeds looked nothing like what you see on Instagram or wherever you get your Slavic-inspired art. I bet our female ancestors weaved their reeds with flowers and perhaps even mostly with herbs. Herbs like rue, wormwood, stonecrop or thyme. It would actually make a lot of sense in the context of a later Judeo-Christian tradition of celebration of the Feast of Corpus Christi. The Feast of Corpus Christi is a Catholic holiday. It's held around June time and a part of Corpus Christi tradition is, guess what? Making wreaths. The Judeo-Christian June wreaths are made exclusively from herbs and traditionally after... Uh, Starring in the Catholic ceremony, those reeds were used as medicine. And you know, if the Catholic Church stole the pagan tradition of Kupawa and adapted it to Catholic rituals, it wouldn't be the first time such uh, cultural misappropriation happened. The example of cultural misappropriation committed by Christian Church are seen with many others originally pagan celebration, like Christmas adapted from Szczodregody, Easter or Green Week made to accommodate the pagan spring holidays, or All Saints Day made from Jade. But back to Kupawa. Nowadays on social media there is many memes and inspirational quotes produced by various self-proclaimed volks or witches or herbalists or sorcerers or shamans who claim that forest is like home to us humans. It's cozy and it's healing and it's safe and we should all abandon the civilization and we should go back to our roots to live in a hut <laughs> in the middle of the forest and then we will all be happy and fulfilled and we will live there long enough so we can all develop the mystical ancient wisdom. But contrary to those mystical claims, in the times of our ancestors, forests rivers or in fact any area distant from the human settlements, they were not hospitable or safe. Forest wasn't our home, the village was. Forest was a place where you went to get food or wood or herbs and as soon as you got those things you came back to the village because the village was safe 
and the forest was not. The forest was full of wolves or boars. Those animals could easily kill you or you could get lost or you could become wounded or break a leg, which with the population density of zero to six person per kilometer square, no GPS, no search and rescue services and no modern medicine, it could re easily result in your death or some sort of permanent disability, which could also and very easily eventually lead to your death. Rivers were not much safer. They were unregulated and full of whirlpools, not to mention Vodniki and Topielce, which are Slavic water demons. It was really easy to drown in those rivers. And if you were drowning on the Slavic land in early medieval ages, nobody would help you because helping a drowning person was, back in the day, considered disrespectful to the gods and to the water itself. However, as the Kupawa tradition indicates, pre-Christian non-virgin Slavic girls did go to the forest and at the river only to collect flowers and most likely herbs too. So our Slavic heroines, they risked their health and lives to make their reeds. They also had to abandon their other responsibilities, of which there were very many. Regardless of the time of the year, pre-Christian Slavic girls and women every day had to spin and sew and wash and repair clothes and cook, bake, carry water, clean milk goats or make cheese and brew beer. They had to attend to farm animals. They have to collect and dry depending on the season, herbs or mushroom or berries or nuts or wild growing vegetables such as carrots or cucumbers. They had to prepare herbal remedies, which in those times were the only medicine available, so you really had to prepare herbal remedies. They had to mind the children, help the neighbors minding the children. They had to care for the sick and, you know, plenty of other things. And this is where we finally find the in Vitya's opinion, real meaning of the Kupawa's reeds. It's very unlikely that the Kupawa reeds symbolize virginity, but very likely though that they symbolize the knowledge about where and when to find the right flowers or herbs. They symbolize the sacrifice of other responsibilities. And there is one thing they also symbolized. They symbolize self-reflection. If you ever had a chance of weaving a wreath, you know that it's not as simple as it might seem. Finding and collecting the flowers and herbs is not even half of the job. You also have to arrange them, weave or in other way connect together so the whole construction fits your head and is stable and looks pretty. All of it requires time, it requires concentration and skills, but it also, like weaving fabric or like sewing or knitting, it also encourages the mind to ponder. And I bet our ancestors, our female ancestors, pondered. They were girls and young women. They were old enough to understand the weight of marriage, the risk of pregnancy and labor, and the responsibilities of the wife. In their teenage life, they must have at some point witnessed another woman giving birth. Because, you know, in the olden times, without electricity, TV or cars, nights were really, really quiet and every single scream of labor pain 
it carried far through the thin walls of our ancestors' homes. Every cry could be heard by the whole village. It wasn't so bad if the pain of giving birth ended with the first cry of a healthy baby, but many pregnancies back then resulted in the mother dying. It could be as many as one in 75. And dying in labor, it has to be said, it's unimaginable pain. It's suffering that can last days or even weeks. And the whole village, both the adults and the children, they witnessed every moment of this ordeal. Those mothers who did manage to deliver a healthy child, they didn't really have reasons to be optimistic about the future. It's estimated that 30 to 50% of early medieval children did not survive to their fifth birthday. And the village, including our teenage heroines, they witnessed this pain and the heartbreak too. So yeah, this is what the girls thought about when they were making the reads. It's very likely that they also thought about their beloved. Because in Slavic tradition, Kupawa was and still is the celebration of fertility and love and therefore it is the very special time for couples. Traditionally, throwing the reeds on the water was seen as a sort of divination. In some parts of the land of Slavs, for example in eastern Poland, unmarried girls with two reeds, one for the girl and the other one for her beloved, and she threw both of them in the water. The flow of those reeds was used in divination. If both reeds flew together, that was seen as a good omen. If one of them drowned, it meant grim future for the relationship. So if Kupawa was the time of divination, of future telling for the girl and her beloved, it's pretty psychologically likely that the girls and young women who weaved their reeds while weaving them, they thought about the topic of the divination. With the flowers and the herbs, they also incorporated into their reeds their, their hopes, their fears, their dreams for the future. It is likely they were using their knowledge about flowers and herbs, like, and they were using their skills like weaving and spinning and sewing. They were putting all of their knowledge and skills into this wreath, to ask the river, is that enough? Am I wise enough? Am I strong enough? Am I healthy enough to start the new chapter of my life? Is what I have who I am? Is it good enough to get married, to take on all the new responsibilities, to have my baby and to live through it? So yeah, Kupawa was time of thinking things through time of making plans and making decisions because, you know, the wreath that tells the future was made by the girl whose future was being asked for. So if she wasn't ready, if she decided that she did not want to get married or she didn't think it was the right time to settle down, all she had to do is to weave a wreath that could not float. The wreath goes under, everybody sees it, and nobody questions it. That's it. The river said it. It's not time yet. So the girl, if she didn't want to mature and move to the next stage of her life, she could buy herself, or rather weave herself, another year of being where she wanted to be. And surprise, surprise, she was supported. 
all the jobs she did not do while making her wreath, somebody else picked up. The mother, the father, the brother, they took care of everything so she could have time of self-reflection and planning. It was an easy task that had to be completed on Kupawa's day. Kupawa was one of the most important holidays for our ancestors, so, you know, it required a lot of other preparations. Kupawa required big bonfires, so somebody had to gather and chop the wood. There also had to be a big feast, so somebody had to cook it. Somebody had to protect and guard the safety and the security of the village and the girls. And all those tasks, those preparations, they had to be completed by other members of the community. And you know what? I bet they did it without any complaints. Because they knew something we, the longer living Slavs, often forget about. They knew that the teenage girls preparing for the Kupawa ritual, those girls were the hope and the future of the whole community. Let's not forget our ancestors died more often and lived shorter lives than we have. Bolesław the Brave, the first king of Poland, he lived 58 years. And he was considered very old man when he was dying. Nowadays, in 21st century, 58 is not really that old. 80 is old. Back then, in early medieval ages, barely anyone lived that long. So, in a society of high mortality and short life expectancy, health and fertility of young girls is like the thing, the most important, the paramount factor allowing the community to survive. A man or even teenage boy can father many children very quickly, but a woman can only carry and give birth to one or two at the most a year. And if children's mortality is 30 to 50%, you need to give birth to two or three children to, five years later, have one that is healthy and alive. Kupawa was a ritual focused on unmarried girls, love and fertility, all of which was necessary for the whole community to continue, well, being, living, to stop the community from dying out. I bet you any money that unmarried girls were looked after on this day. They had the time they needed and the safe space to weave their wreaths, to ponder and think, to prepare for the divination ritual, to make a decision that was right for them. And now, Let's compare this vision with what we know about our modern world. Most of the Western societies claim to hold women, including young women, in high regard. We, the female part of human population, we have all the rights and freedoms, but we also are given a lot of responsibilities and expectations, and we don't seem to have the right or the freedom to refuse to follow and fulfill the society judgment that is put upon us. And it's not that those responsibilities and expectations that society has towards women have any wide margin of error. You have got to get it just right. If you can't wait to be a mother and a homemaker, you're told that you're not living your life to the full. But if you want to focus on your career, in the society's opinion, you are still not living your life to the full. If you don't want to wear makeup, you are letting yourself go, girl. But if you wear makeup, you're not natural. If you wear clothes that are ever so slightly too revealing, you are sexually objectifying yourself. 
But if you wear clothes that cover your body just a little bit too much, you're not exploring your femininity and you approve. And you don't want to be approved because you are a strong and independent woman and you have to. You simply must show it through your sexual liberation. If you want to be a model, you have to be either emaciated or obese. The healthy middle ground is not allowed. You are supposed to want and to have what your pre-industrial female ancestors had. So husband, children, house, home-cooked dinner, the lot. But at the same time, you are expected to want and have a career, a financial independence, nice body and looks that are just right. Modern women and young girls in particular are daily bombarded with responsibilities and expectations. Every day, modern teenage girls are given more tasks, more work, without any time for self-reflection, without much, if any, help, support and understanding from friends, from family or the society in general. We, nowadays, don't have a single tradition which is widely practiced and respected and is dedicated to give girls safe space and time so they can plan, hope, dream and share it with their peers and friends. And if we try to develop one, well, if somebody tried to encourage men, the fathers and the brothers, to give up one day a year for the sake of their daughters or sisters, well, this somebody would most probably be laughed at and perhaps even accused of demasculinization, feminism or making a problem where there isn't any. And we, those who live in a society like that, we claim that pre-Christian Slavs did not respect or regard women because women could not become their father's heir in the medieval ages because Slavic girl couldn't inherit the family's wealth. So let's talk a bit about the inheritance thing. Apparently, the fact that the only heir of a father could be his son, not his daughter, is like the proof that our female ancestors did not have an important position in the society of pre-Christian Slavs. But if you look at the way Slavs started their families, it gives a slightly different picture of inheritance laws. Because it wasn't easy for our male ancestors to find a wife. A pre-Christian Slavic man looking to settle down and start a family he not only had to find a woman willing to run his household and give him children, but he was also required to gather enough wealth to be able to give to his future wife an expensive wedding gift, to, in a way, pay her in advance for her commitment and faithfulness. The pre-Christian Slavic wedding gifts were so valuable that many young men could not afford them. So now, keeping that in mind, Imagine that you are early medieval Slavic parent. Imagine that you have two children, a daughter and a son. Both your children are healthy, strong, good-looking and capable. However, only one of them does not need your financial support to settle down, start a family and give your grandchildren. There is nothing wrong with your son. He might even be the most handsome boy in the village, but despite his health and strength and ability and good looks, no girl will take him for a husband unless he produces a decent wedding gift. A gift your daughter will receive from a man she will agree to marry. 
She will receive this gift not because she's any better, smarter, stronger or good-looking than your son. She will receive it because she's a girl. I know it's pure sexism here. It wouldn't fly in our modern world, would it? But this is how things worked back then. But there were things in medieval ages that worked the same way as nowadays. For example, parents, most parents, they wanted the best for their children. So keep imagining that you're this pre-Christian Slavic parent. And as a parent, you want the best for your children. As a Slav, you're sensible and reasonable, so you know that fair share is not always an equal share. Therefore, you give your wealth to your son so he can afford a wedding gift and a wife. And at the same time, you wait for your daughter to find her future husband so she can get a gift as valuable or even more valuable than what you gave to your son. And in this way, both your children will have a fair share. So, no, in pre-Christian Slavic societies, daughter did not inherit their father's wealth, but not because they were not respected, but because they did not need the family wealth to settle down and start a family. The only thing our female ancestors needed from their families and communities was one day a year, one day dedicated to preparing a divination to ask the river for advice and get answers needed to make important life decisions for the future. If you are a man, not necessarily Slavic, in the time of Kupawa do your best to make time to respect and honor the needs of the woman in your life. Following the example of your ancestors, give your daughter or sister or your wife or your girlfriend, give them one day. One day without responsibilities, without expectations or to-do list. Give them one day without stress or worries. Give them time and space to think, to dream, to hope and plan for the future. Let them go at the river. Let them seek the wisdom of the Mother Earth. And for every girl and woman, Slavic or not, Swava sisters, may the river's answer be true. So that's all for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it, but uh, if you didn't, that's also okay. Uh, it'll be great if you can let us know regardless. You can contact Vitya via our Facebook or Instagram. You can leave a comment on Vitya's YouTube channel. You can contact us on our website, which is witia.squarespace.com or send us an email on w-i-t-i-a dot d-a-b-o-r-u at gmail.com Whatever you have to say, we want to hear it. And for now, take care, enjoy the summer, and suava.